Thank you, Carly. All right, if you want to turn to Hebrews 9, we'll be there today. We believe that God has spoken to us in his word, and he's given us a, he's revealed himself in ways that are true and trustworthy. We also believe that God's word is powerful and effective and is the means by which God works and does mighty things, by which he saves, by which he changes, um, by which he brings about his purposes. And so we preach from God's word. If you're new to Roots, we typically go through books of the Bible, um, just attempting to expose what God has said and trusting God to do his work through it. So we're going to continue to do that today in Hebrews 9 as we work through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 8 to 10, which Nate started on last week, but this section from 8 to 10 is a longer section that compares and contrasts Jesus and what he accomplished to the Old Testament system of priests and sacrifices and a temple that God had set up that we read about in our Old Testaments. Now, as you read through this section from Hebrews 8 to 10, you, m- you might find yourself asking, what does this have to do with my life? What is the relevance of this? Why is it necessary for us today to talk about priests and sacrifices and blood and the temple? This all seems quite archaic and irrelevant, if not quite strange. Can't we just skip to Jesus and talk about him? Can't we just get to what the Bible has to say about my life, the ways the Bible speaks to the problems and the questions of my life? Well, I said a couple weeks ago that God, through the Bible, does more than answers the questions that we bring to him. God, through the Bible, also gives us new questions, gives us new problems that we didn't know were problems, perhaps, new priorities, new agendas. And so one of the ways that the Bible confronts us is it confronts, it, it, is it causes us to ask new questions and causes us to let God Help us see ourselves and the world and him anew. And so before we continue in this section today, I want to take a step back and just consider and help you see why this all matters. Why talking about things that you probably didn't think about this week, priests and sacrifices and the temple, matters and has relevance for your life today. So the question that the book of Hebrews presupposes and the question that the whole Bible helps to answer and does answer is this. What must be done to effectively deal with humanity's sinful rebellion against our creator God and to bring us back into a right relationship, a relationship of favor and peace with God? The question that the book of Hebrews presupposes is is this. What must be done to effectively deal with this, this problem of sin that has brought great ruin to the world and our lives, has separated us from God? This issue, this problem, is at the center of God's revelation in the Bible. Now, there are various reasons that this question is not often our greatest priority is not the question on our minds, and perhaps you've never even considered it. For one, we don't think that our sin is that big of a deal. Of course, we know we're not perfect, but nobody is. 
It's just how it is. God understands. And this leads to a second reason. We think that surely God understands our weakness and struggles and difficulties with sin, and he'll work it out on his own. Often, what we mean by trusting in God just means trusting in our own image of God, trusting God to act as we would imagine him to act, rather than actually hearing and trusting what he tells us about himself. And then third, we've all heard that God is love, which we take to mean God will act favorably to us for our good no matter what, because that's what love means, right? And we fail to realize that God's loving perfection means that he loves what is pure, what is good, what is right, and what is true, and he is working towards all that is good and right and true. And if we are honest, that is not us. God is seeking to rid the world of all that diminishes what is perfectly good and right and true. And on our own, we have no right to be a part of that world. We have no case to be made to be in the presence of such a God. We are rebels against our creator. And so one of the verses you read in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 17.9 is one of the most insightful and also the one of the most frightening verses in the Bible. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And as you read through the Bible, you find that this is eminently true of every single human being. Every human heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, beyond understanding. And I don't think it takes you, don't think it would take you much honest reflection to realize that you are not the exception. And so you come here today with many questions and needs and issues on your mind, and rightly so. Will I ever change? Will I ever be free of my addictions? Will my marriage ever improve? Will the darkness of depression and hopelessness ever pass? How can I deal with the tensions and difficulties of relationships in my life? How can I be free from the fear of death? How can I get over the death of a loved one? Will my guilt for hidden sins ever go away? Will the pain ever go away? Why does every good thing seem to fade? And you don't find any of these topics in Hebrews 9. And so we wonder, does the Bible really speak to my life? Does God know what I'm facing? Well, here's the thing. The underlying sickness behind all of these difficulties you and I face in the world is a world wrecked by sin. Your own sin, the sin of others against you, even our physical bodies and minds and emotions that are broken because of sin and don't work as they ought to. And while God's word does speak to specifically to all of these questions and all of these issues, we must ultimately get behind these issues to the root issue. And so as God begins to reveal himself through the Bible and through the Old Testament, 
he begins to reveal that he himself will sufficiently deal with human sin. He himself will sufficiently deal with the power of sin, with the, with the presence of sin, and with the just punishment of sin that it brings before a holy God. He himself will restore us to a right relationship with God and will restore us to how we were meant to be. And little by little, as you read through the Bible, you get a picture of what God is going to do. God begins to reveal his plan. And perhaps the most vivid and helpful way that he reveals what he's going to do ultimately in Jesus is through this system of priests and sacrifices and a temple that he had set up among ancient Israel. You can go read Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, gets into all the details there. Now, such a system would not have been strange to ancient Israel. They lived among people where there were temples and sacrifices and, and priests and all of this. This it was quite common of the time. But it is strange to us. But here's the thing. God was using something that was specific to that, that time and culture and place to teach them and us about things that are true for all time, that are transcendent, to teach us about ultimate reality. And that's what Hebrews is helping us to see. This Old Testament system of sacrifices and cleansing rituals and priests and all of this was not God's ultimate plan, was not God's ultimate solution to the problem of human sin and all the misery and the chaos and the pain and destruction that it brings. This whole system, as Hebrews says, was a copy and a shadow of the real thing, of the ultimate plan, of the fullness of the plan that God would bring about in Jesus. And so in chapter 8 last week, which Nate covered, we read, they, the priests of the Old Testament, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And so all of the rituals and functions of the priests and temple were a mere copy of and shadow of something that is more real, more lasting, more significant. These words copy and shadow show up a couple other times in Hebrews. So in chapter 10, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, we read that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities. Again, every aspect of this whole system of priests and sacrifices and cleansing rituals was like a shadow pointing to Jesus and what he would do. Well, what is a shadow? Well, shadow is not a real thing right? You don't go out to lunch with the shadows of your friends. You don't shake the hands of, of shadows. You don't hug a shadow. But what a shadow does is give you a picture, a resemblance of the real thing. It's not a, it's not a false image, but it's also not a complete full image. Similarly, these elements of the, the Old Covenant that we read about in the Old Testament are not the real thing that God is doing, but they, do, they are valuable in that, that they represent the real thing. They tell us of real heavenly spiritual realities, 
They're also described as a copy. Now, what is a copy? Well, a copy is also not a real thing. If I had a copy of a, of a work of art that was worth millions of dollars, that doesn't mean the copy is worth millions of dollars. It might be worth nothing. However, the copy does mean that the real thing exists. It points to the real thing. And so the real thing that matters in all of this is a spiritual reality. And it's a spiritual reality because we're talking about God, who is spirit. Now, spiritual doesn't mean less real. Spiritual doesn't mean less real than what is physical and material and that we can touch. We are talking about reality here. God is really on his throne in heaven. That is as real as a chair you're sitting on. Yours and my sin is a real thing and really separates us from the holiness and the presence and purity of God. As real as the chair you're sitting on. And through the blood of Jesus, God really does cleanse us of our sin and guilt, change us from the inside out, and make, his beloved, make us his beloved children for all eternity. This is just as real, if not more real, than the, the bread and the wine and juice that we will partake of later. Later, the, the bread and the wine and the juice are mere shadows, mere copies of what is more real than them. And so Hebrews, in this section, is using the shadow and copy that is this old covenant, the way that God dealt with ancient Israel through the law and the temple and sacrifices to help us understand what that was pointing forward to. The, the new covenant in Jesus, this relational agreement or commitment that God makes with us in Jesus. And much of Hebrews, including in this section, is a comparison and is it compare, compares and contrasts. You, you know this in writing, right? We might compare and contrast the, the coaching styles of Pete Carroll versus the coaching styles of Mike, Mike McDonald. Here are the ways that they are similar. Here are the ways that they differ. If you're a nerd like me you might, and, and you go birding, you might compare and contrast the Stellar's J with the Blue J. As you know, we don't have Blue Jays around here. One has all blue and, and one has some black in it. All right, that's your lesson for today. Comparison and contrast. So the author of Hebrews in chapters 8 through 10 is comparing Jesus and contrasting Jesus to the Old Testament system. But he's not only showing how Jesus is different. He's ultimately showing how Jesus is better. You might have noticed, but in the book of Hebrews, we keep coming across these words like better, greater, more perfect. The word better actually occurs more times in Hebrews than in all the rest of the New Testament combined. So that's what's going on in this section. With that introduction, let's get into this. Chapter 8 finished with a long quote from the, book of, the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. It's, per, it's actually the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. And that, uh, that quote told us, presented, that the old, um, well, it, God promised a new covenant. Well before the time of Jesus, God promised a new covenant. The, the old or first covenant referred to all that we've been talking about, about the priests and the temple and sacrifices, the commands God gave Israel. And the new covenant has in mind all that God did through Jesus. And chapter 9 begins by describing some of the features of the old or first covenant. 
starting at verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, or tabernacle, this is referring to what would become the temple. For the tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. These are all various um, items of remembrance for how God had mightily worked among ancient Israel. Verse 5, above it were the cherubim. This is an angel-like creature um, that was made out of gold on top of the, the ark. Cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The, the, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, that is the most holy place, which represented the presence of God, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And we'll pause there. Now, God had set this system up. God had given very specific instructions. Again, go read Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. God had given specific instructions about how this was to work, and it did communicate true and important truths to them and even to us today. For instance, we see that sin leads to death. This isn't a truth only relevant to cultures with temples and sacrifices. Sin is rebellion, rebellion against our Creator God, His refusal to trust His goodness, an attack on His good, good, good world, and it does lead to death. And so either we must die or something or someone dies in our place. We see also that God's favor and grace are not automatically ours. It is not enough to say, well, God is love and so my sin is no big of a deal. I'll just get on with my life. No, something must be done. Atonement must be made. We must be cleansed and forgiven and freed. Something must be done. Likewise, we see in this, in this old covenant, in this system, that we must come to God on his terms, not ours. We see that only the priests who had gone through these cleansing rituals, rituals could come and bring sacrifices before God. And then only the high priest, and him only once a year on what was called the Day of Atonement, could actually come into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and offer a sacrifice for the people. And again, you had all these very specific instructions on how to build the temple and how to offer sacrifices and how to be cleansed and all of this. God sets the terms, not us, even today. But despite these true truths that were communicated by this old covenant, it did not and it could not provide a sufficient solution and was never intended to. And so the author of Hebrews begins to explain, verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, that is God's presence, is not yet opened as long as the first section or this first temple system is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, while this system made clear God's intention to do something about the problem of human sin, it also made clear that there was still distance and separation between God and his people. You had no direct contact or relationship with God, but you had to be represented by these priests. And even these priests who had to go through all these cleansing, cleansing rituals themselves did not have direct access to God. Only the high priest, again, could once a year go into actual God's presence Something more, something better was needed. So Hebrews goes on, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, so this is speaking of heaven where God dwells, he entered, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, That's into God's presence. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption or liberation or release or salvation. The Gospels, the Gospel accounts tell us that when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple between this holy place and the most holy place where God's presence dwelt was torn in two at the death of Jesus. And this is a physical, material, historical reality pointing to a spiritual reality. Access into God's presence was now opened. You and I can come confidently, boldly into the presence of God because Jesus has died. The, the, the veil, the curtain was torn in two. Going on, a few more verses. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who, if you recall from chapter 1 of Hebrews, that Christ, who is God in the flesh, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, that's who Christ is. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. One more verse. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions transgressions committed under the first covenant. One of the things that is abundantly clear as you read through this is that Christ's death actually accomplished something. It was effective. It was not merely a display of God's love, though it was that. It was not merely a display of God's humility and and self-sacrifice, though it was that. His death is and was a powerful and effective transaction.
It is an effective deed that brings real change now and into eternity for all who trust in him, for all who come to him. Christ's death is the real substance, the real thing of the shadow that was the sacrificial system. It is the original version, the, the worth millions version of which the sacrificial system was only a copy. In other words, Jesus is the better and more perfect high priest who mediates between sinful humanity and a holy God. Jesus offer, offers a better and more perfect sacrifice, his own body and blood in death, to atone for human sin once and for all. And he himself is the better and more perfect temple in whom God himself dwells, who is God in the flesh, and through whom we can have access, curtain torn, veil torn, access into the presence of God, cleansed, forgiven, loved, welcomed. As Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so it is still true what that old covenant and, and, and system proclaimed. It is still true that sin leads to death. It is still true that God's favor and grace are not ours automatically. And it is still true that we must come to God on his terms, not our own. And his terms are quite simple. Through Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, crucified for you. God is gracious and merciful, and he does provide a way. He has not left us to our, to our own devices, but he has accomplished our salvation in Jesus. Now, the reason that the author of Hebrews is making such a big deal of this is that the audience of this letter, who were mostly Jewish Hebrews, this one's called Hebrews, who were mostly Jewish Christians, were tempted to turn away from Christ and go back to Judaism, to go back to the practices of the temple, to go back to these sacrifices. Now, I imagine this is not a temptation of most, for most of you. More than likely, you are not considering today becoming Jewish. And even if you are, the temple no longer exists. And modern Jews don't even offer sacrifices anymore. And so it would be virtually impossible to go back to this today. However, we do have a related temptation. The temptation for us, like the Hebrews, is that we would miss the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. That we would miss or downplay Christ as the only and sufficient way to peace with God, hope in this life and the next, freedom from guilt, and the power to live a new life. If you think about it, if the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which was set up by God, and the laws of the Old Testament, which God had given and were to be obeyed. But if all of this was insufficient to actually make you right with God, were a mere copy and shadow, 
you can guarantee that any method that you and I come up with to, to bring ourselves to God will be completely insufficient. What the laws and sacrifices of the Old Covenant revealed by God's design is that anything that rests on human obedience and faithfulness is bound to fail. In whatever ways your hope rests and your confidence rests in yourself, in your efforts, in your morality, in your ethical concerns, in your faithfulness, it will not suffice. The lesson to be learned throughout Scripture is that salvation is of the Lord. This is the headline that is on every page of Scripture, the, the megaphone that screams out on every page of Scripture, salvation is of the Lord. He does it. You can't do it. You don't have it within you. You can't make enough sacrifices. You can't be faithful enough. You can't do enough. You need God to save you. You need to turn to God, behold his salvation in Jesus, and trust him to be enough. That is our only hope in life and death. And I've hinted at it a few times, but to be clear, this does not mean what many today think it means, merely that God is loving and so it'll all work out in the end. Well, that is not how we even think of a loving human father or human ruler working. We know that love does not mean ignoring and disregarding whatever someone does. No, we must come to God on his terms. And his terms are not just a general idea that he is loving and he would never condemn anyone for their sins. His terms are payment for sins through his mercy in the death of Jesus or payment for sins through the judgment of hell. And so the very last verse, couple verses of this chapter of Hebrews 9 say this, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We will all die. And sin leads to death, eternal death, either our own or Christ in our place. There's no other option. God alone saves. Jesus' Jesus' disciple Peter wrote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's a striking statement. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Again, Christ's death actually accomplished something, actually did something. It goes on to say that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so God has given us something much better than a, a system, something much better than rituals to go through, something much better than commands to follow. He's given us himself. And he has done this in part so that we might be compelled and motivated and empowered to live for him, to die to sin and live to righteousness. Through faith in Jesus, you and I can be saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin in our life, and in the future, saved from the presence of sin. 
And once we realize this, and once we begin to experience this and embrace this, we realize that all of the answers to the questions and difficulties that we face in our life begin here at the cross. The root of the answer and the solution to all of the difficulties that we face in our life flow from the cross. Everything flows from what God has done for us in the cross. And so we must behold that and never stop beholding that. We must come to Jesus through his death in our place and cling to him. By God's design, the cross is the center, the, the pinnacle of his grand plan to make us his own and to dwell with us for all eternity. Let's pray.